I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hello. Welcome to another episode of Ancient Office Hours by the Ozymandias Project. Trireme Transit is now boarding for all new and returning passengers. Now departing, present ponderings. Next stop is Ancient Office Hours at a library lost in the sands of time. Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 32 of the podcast. This week, I nerded out with the delightful Mel McCubrey, a Canadian game developer and all-around super awesome human. She's worked on several projects, most notably serving as narrative director for Ubisoft's Assassin's Creed Odyssey. I want to thank Michael Antonakos, the voice of Alexios, for suggesting I reach out to her. Like many other classicists and art historians, Odyssey is my favorite game in the Assassin's Creed franchise. This was an incredibly fun and special conversation to record. I learned about her job as a narrative director and the thinking behind some of the decisions involved in the making of Odyssey. We spoke about her unique path into video game development, discussed her favorite parts about working on Assassin's Creed Odyssey, and about whether there's a growing space for historians and humanities majors to work in entertainment. This episode is mostly a deep dive into the world of AC Odyssey, since it's the only AC game set in ancient Greece and draws most heavily on Greek mythology. Apologies, but my normal mic wasn't working, so I was forced to record using my headphones, and thus my audio quality is not the greatest in this episode. There are spoilers ahead for those who have not completed the game, so if you have not finished it, you might want to do so before listening to this episode. You've been warned. So, without further ado, enjoy the app, and I'll speak to y'all soon. Thank you so much for joining me this really <laughs> fine, warm afternoon. If you could start out by just introducing yourself a little bit for everyone who's not really familiar with the gaming industry and kind of like what you do. Hi, my name is Mel McCubrey. I'm a game developer. I work for Cloud Chamber Studio in Montreal, and I've worked on a bunch of games in the past. I came up through the games industry through writing, mostly. Started as an intern script writer, um, eventually became a narrative director on Assassin's Creed Odyssey, and uh, now I'm an associate creative director at a different company. Mostly my concentration has been on writing and design. 
And now I have a job where I oversee a lot of things, but that's basically my background. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. And did you always know you want to go into video games or did you think, hey, maybe I actually want to go and be a writer? I was definitely one of those freaks that knew what they wanted to do like way too young. Like I always went to like uh, high school and like elementary school with people who were like the children of doctors and they would be like, I want to be like a toe surgeon when I grow up or like, I want to be a teacher. And I was like, you guys are weird. <laughs> and, but inside I was like, oh man, I always, like, I want to, I want to work in video games. And I remember I was doing like an interview for a potential high school and they were like, what do you want to do when you grow up? And I was like, I want to make video games though. I really don't know what that means yet but I would love to, to be involved in the video game making process somehow because I was really into uh, games as a kid, fell in love with Pokemon, you know, the rest is history. And they were like, oh, well, you can't do that. You have to go to university. So it took me all the way into university for me to realize that, oh, games are possible. <laughs> and I can't, I can't actually pursue this career. Um, and I definitely came in the writing way, but that's probably just because I was already doing some writing like in school and stuff. So that was probably like the best route to go in, but I always knew that I wanted to be in games somehow. Hey, that's cool. I love it when people know at like oddly young ages, they want to be something super specific. You knew at a pretty young age, you want to go into video games. Did you have a sense of what kind of video games you wanted to work with specifically? Did you trend toward mythological material or did you like sort of realistic things, futuristic things? Well, when I was super young and really into video games, like I didn't know where you began with that. Like I didn't, I didn't know anything. Like I, I didn't know anything about programming. Like I didn't, I was just like, wow, this is a magical technology that transports me to another land and allows me to be who I want to be. Specifically, I hate to repeat myself, but with Pokemon, I was like, I am an adventurer. I can go around the world with animals. Like this is the best thing. And I side note was living beside a very religious family. Um, so some of their stuff rubbed off on me when I was very little. I remember kneeling in a ditch and like praying and I was like, God, <laughs> make me a Pokemon trainer. <laughs> so like, it wasn't based off of any knowledge of how to get in. I was just like, please. And then when I was in high school and university, yes, I was doing a lot of writing, but I've always been very interested in history. Um, and so when I eventually started working with the Assassin's Creed team, I was fairly easily inspired right away. I love doing research, specifically love how Assassin's Creed takes historical context and then you can really make something out of the research that you, you, you gain and you can form a story out of the knowledge that you have and really use kind of the creative license within that historical boundary. And I always have loved, loved, loved that. So it was very easy for me to fall in love with the Assassin's Creed franchise uh, because it was tied to history. So I definitely didn't have that like route going in, but as soon as that door opened, I was like, oh, this is amazing. I love this. And I remember I was an intern uh, at Ubisoft Montreal and I was asked if I would want to move to Quebec City to work on Assassin's Creed Syndicate, which was Victorian English history. And 
I was like, I totally love this entire like time frame. Like I need to go work on this project. Like I want to read Charles Dickens until my face goes blue. Like, please let, let me do this. Um, and then when we eventually moved on to Odyssey, I was like, oh, this is my theater background coming back in. I already have an investment in ancient Greece. So I, it was not it was not hard for me to fall in love and finally find that track through the games industry. Oh, that's so cool. Did you take any mythology classes in school along the way? No, but you could argue that mythology has a big influence on a lot of other stuff. So like, well, I didn't take like a ancient Greece class um, or like a golden age of Athens class. I read a lot of Shakespeare and Shakespeare was hugely influenced by like ancient cultures. And um, when you're in theater, you do like a ton of plays that are like, oh, this is by Sophocles. Like, I, I mean, I remember doing Agamemnon in high school and, <laughs> and just like totally falling in love with mythology through that venue, like through that angle, instead of like directly going at mythology. Um, it was usually from some other, you know, avenue. Oh, I love that because I I notice sometimes for my theater friends, and I if I get particularly philosophical, I'll sort of ask them and say, "Hey, so what plays did you do? Did you do any Shakespeare? Did you do any direct mythological plays? What did you take from that?" And most of them actually, sadly, say, "No, we didn't really do any direct mythological plays, but Single a lot tier. of Shakespeare's." Yeah, always done. So I'm like, oh, okay. Um, I think I know one person who did anything mythological in either high school or college. And it was Clytemnestra. So I was like, so it's a classic, amazing thing. But I'm also like, but it's the one and there's so many others you could do. Okay, sad face emoji. Yeah. And I don't remember why I ended up reading a bunch of those. I don't remember if it was because we actually had a class in theater that we were reading like Greek plays and stuff but like I have copies of so many of these plays so I must have been reading them for school or something like um it was very easy for me to like pull out a copy of the Bacchae to bring to work when I started working on Assassin's Creed Odyssey like I just have just have these plays <laughs> laying around um so I, I definitely got invested I think mostly through uh, theater, but uh, a little bit of uh, influence in the English lit sphere as well. Yeah, well, and then I think, feel free to correct me, because sometimes looking at the past, my brain gets all like ADD about it, but I think the first Assassin's Creed came out in what, 2007, I want to say? I wasn't there. I wasn't there. Don't blame me. <laughs> it's okay. At some point, though, because it came out when I was pretty young, did you play Assassin's Creed games before you became an intern there? Like, were you, like, super invested in historical games, really? Or were you kind of just like, I'll do any games, anything, not oh. really looking for a specific one? Hmm. I mean, I think I just kind of took, if I played games that had historical context, I probably took it for granted. Like, I've always been a huge fan of the, like, Civ Civilization series, which is not, like, a story about history, but it is hilarious because there are all these references to history that can happen um, based on, like, the choices that you make and the strategies that you pick. Um, so I think 
my interest has always been there, whether I've kind of noticed it or not. And later down the line, looking back, I can say like, oh yeah, like I always loved history in games, but I didn't, I definitely didn't have that angle going in. Like I I very much wanted to work in games and I had favorite games and I had games that I have obviously like never played because who has time to play every game under the sun. But I didn't go in thinking like, oh, um, I need to work on the Assassin's Creed franchise. It was more of a like, please accept me. Here's everything I've ever done in my whole life in a binder. <laughs> Do you love me? I will serve you. <laughs> Put me on whatever. Cause it was just like, at that point, some beggars can help and choosers, you know? Um, oh, so I didn't, sure. I didn't go in thinking like, oh man, I gotta get onto the AC team. It was just like, please accept me. If you want me to get coffee for you, I will. Yeah, I think that's so relatable, honestly. Any field, right? It's like, I just get my foot in the door. I will do anything. And then as I earn my way up, we can start talking about specifics and, and all that. So I think it's really cool. Then I guess things just sort of fell into place for you. And you got to then work on some really cool things that you later were like, yes, I love this. This is Awesome. Yeah, my internship was really interesting in that I worked for a part of the Ubisoft Montreal studio that had oversight on many of the projects. And I worked for like the head of script writing at the time. I don't think they have that position anymore. And I was his intern. And so whatever any of the projects needed, I would go and work for that project. So I really got a taste of like all of the stuff that they were making there at the time. And it wasn't until it could have been any project had a job opening that I was like, okay, I can apply for that job, you know, end this internship and be able to do this more full time. Um, so it really was luck and happenstance that it ended up being on a franchise that I got very invested in. <laughs> yeah, I, I, happen to know a lot of people who are gamers who would who tell me things like you know in another life I would have loved to be a game dev maybe I still could be one I don't know how to start what to do so can you talk a little bit about your internship and like you know is that a good place to start and what was it like there are like it's very hard to get your foot in the door because a lot of places are like oh if you want to get a job here, you have to have had a job somewhere else. Like you have to have had a game dev job somewhere else. And it's so hard. And there are a lot of amazing programs now where you can um, be an intern. Um, there are organizations that kind of help you get your foot in the door. So there are like more avenues now. They're still like tricky to find. You definitely have to be invested in your community um, in order to kind of find them. I, and I feel like it's different from state to state, from province to province, um, based on how game dev is represented there. But the internship route was really valuable and definitely something that I recommend for people, especially ones who are trying to get in uh, writing or design. Like if you can find an internship position, all you need is a, like that three to six month credit of that game you worked on in order to get a job somewhere else um it gives you that leverage so um definitely internship is viable a lot of people get in through qa um, or like community uh roles which sort of sucks for those roles because a lot of times they're seen as a stepping stone when it's like those are very legitimate roles that um desire <laughs> uh 
the patients and all the work ethic that goes into those, but a lot of people get in that way as well. It's basically like, if you can find a door, run through it. <laughs> I don't know about in the, in the gaming world. I, you know, I don't know a lot about tech and I think there's a lot of misconceptions around tech, which I'm happy to bust through for everyone who feels a little discouraged, but I know, especially in the academic world, me going through classics and then being very sort of sad when I find out that most of the internship or fellowship experiences that they offer you that you really kind of need if you're going to go on to do bigger things they're all unpaid you barely if you're lucky get a stipend so in the gaming internship sort of entrance I can only speak for the one that I had I was definitely paid for my position Um, and it's at least in Canada very like commonplace for the big AAA studios to pay for their internships. It's I, I'm not sure if it's illegal at this point, but it should be to not pay your employees. But I can't I can't speak for the states, so um, I can't speak for all of your audience. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that's fine. I mean, well, and that leads perfectly into if you want to get into gaming and you're really serious about it, not just sort of a passing vested whatever. Maybe I'll try. Do you recommend moving to a big city that has like serious AAA studios? Like, do you need to move to Montreal or to LA or San Francisco or wherever they have these studios? Or can you be successful by trying to find opportunities in some of those smaller places? I mean, if you have game studios where you are, apply to those, definitely. Because if you're invested in staying in the place that you're in, do that. That is a perfectly viable option, whether it's indie or AAA. Like, if you just want to get in, you just want to get in. If you want to work for specific places, you may need to move. I specifically would never move without a goal. <laughs> like, I didn't move to Montreal hoping I'd win an internship. I was still in university and I had been talking to one of my professors and he had a contact at Ubisoft Montreal. And so I was able to meet this person he was so he like put so much faith in me like I owe Matt Turner so much Uh, and he gave me a tour and then I at the end of the day I was like here's the binder of everything I've ever made my whole life if you ever need somebody call me and a couple months later he said oh hey there's an internship position open would you be interested in applying and it was for somebody else but um, he still like presented that open door opportunity for me I wouldn't have um, moved to Montreal if I didn't have that already. Um, I'm somebody who likes to have the plan, like a plan laid out. Um, though I know a lot of people who do move to big cities, big game hubs to try and find a job. I just like personally wouldn't recommend that until you <laughs> until you have something lined up. But that's just me. I like to be a little bit secure. <laughs> Hey, same deal here. I know too many people who will try to go to a place where there is a nice university hoping that they can get an internship or something. And sometimes it works out great. And then sometimes you're like, well, I moved and now I don't have anything. So this is really awkward. That's it's really difficult. I would not want to be in that position. And to the people who are, uh, my heart goes out to you <laughs> because that is really difficult. And I wish anybody in that position the best of luck. For sure. So, okay, once you latched on to Syndicate, how many Assassin's Creed titles have you had a hand in working on total now? Um, Three credited. Um, I worked on Freedom, Cry, Syndicate, and Odyssey, and then 
DLCs uh, for those ones. Um, and then I worked on Immortals Phoenix Rising, which uh, Ubisoft Quebec did for a little bit. And I left before, uh, during the production to take on my current job. But uh, yeah, so three fully credited AC titles. That's super awesome. I know so many classicists who you've made happy with, with the finished product that is now Assassin's Creed Odyssey. I don't think... It's, it's really incredible how a game blew up in academic circles. That was one of the biggest shocks. Like, I had no idea how many academics were also gamers on the side. I think it's probably just because we haven't been given something of that scale, I suppose, um, and that level of realism before. I mean, you know, they're marginally games set in ancient Greece and whatever. It just kind of blew up. And so now people are using it to teach and do really cool things with it, um, you know, Obviously, when you make a game, you're thinking about gamers first and foremost. But did you have any inkling that this would like blow up for academics too? Um, I had a, a couple people reach out after Syndicate came out to talk to me. It was like students um, to talk to me about how the history ties in and to their degree or whatever. And it's like that tenfold uh, after. Honestly, honestly, they're my favorite conversations. Like I love talking with students about um, what they're doing in their like linguistics, like PhD, and, and how Odyssey somehow plays a role in that. Um, bringing it to life was amazing. It is incredible to have scholars and scholarly types and students um, get in touch to talk about why we made certain decisions the way we did and what kind of references we pulled. Because honestly, that's the most fun part of making the games is like um, doing all that research, deciding, okay, I got to bring this character to life or somebody else has to bring this character to life. So what are the big things we want to focus on and bring those through? And then what are we putting with those like high level details of that character in order to make them real people again, because you take characters like Socrates for granted now, where, you know, it's just so woven into the fabric of our society and our, in our culture, um, still very much influenced, like ancient Greece still very much influences a lot of like our pop culture and stuff that to bring that character to life and then for people to be interested after and want to talk to you about it and how you made those decisions and and why is like the best feeling ever. <laughs> you are preaching to the choir over here. <laughs> like I am all about that. And I imagine it's quite the reverse. I mean, if you love having conversations with us academic types, cause we're all, we have the history and the degrees and now we want to talk to you about bringing it to life. I'd imagine it's kind of the same, you know, you know, you love talking to us, we love talking to you. Same thing. I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> Luckily, I haven't met one academic who hasn't loved either being able to talk to someone directly involved or who would love the opportunity to do so, uh, I think. Yeah, those are the best conversations. We mix history and gamers together. So there's so much I want to get into about Assassin's Creed Odyssey itself because my audience, who obviously all love mythology in ancient Greece, want to hear about it too. But yeah. quickly, because I do know there is a specific segment of my listeners who don't really know that much about Assassin's Creed, in your own words, how would you describe what on earth Assassin's Creed is? Uh, Assassin's Creed is a franchise that pits two opposing 
forces like against each other. The, the Templars and the Assassins and the Assassins are fighting for the freedom of thought and expression. Um, sometimes I call them the Nihilists and, <laughs> and they very much represent like chaos and freedom. And then you have on the other side, a lot of times uh, you have the Templars who are fighting for order. A lot of times Templars are depicted as the bad guys in these games, uh, in the comics and the novels and everything. Um, but they both have points that are extremely valid and um, sometimes the other ways are represented. So it's, it's pretty cool. But those two thoughts of chaos versus order are always at heads uh, or at odds with one another in one of these titles. So it's every game takes place in a, like a historical context with that narrative layered into it. And then each of those games explores Whatever time period they're set in, you get to meet historical characters, you get to do a lot of research as a developer and try and bring that portion of that history to life. And so that's kind of Assassin's Creed in a nutshell. Um, I'm sure I will be eviscerated by <laughs> fans, but there you go. Um, Odyssey itself follows the story of uh, Cassandra, who is someone who was born in Sparta and is separated from her family at a very young age. You could also choose to play her male counterpart, Alexios, who is her brother. And depending on which character you play, either your brother or your sister is the villain in the story. Spoiler alert. And she is navigating um, very much the golden day, uh, like the golden age of Athens time period during the Peloponnesian War, as she tries to put the pieces of her family back together um, and figure out what happened in her past and um, why she's special, because there's usually that element to the Assassin's franchise as well, the chosen one trope. And it's very much about Odyssey being like an open world game means that we want to encourage exploration of this world in antiquity. We want to meet as many of the characters as we possibly can, get invested in who they are and their character arcs and why they were so important to history, especially the people that you may not have heard of, while layering in this Assassin's Templar narrative on top. Yeah, that's awesome. I will add, because of the sort of Isu mythological things that, that are threaded in throughout the both the game and the franchise itself. I kind of say it's like Ancient Aliens, the video game, you know? <laughs> do, do, do you vibe with that statement or, or am I off? Oh, for sure. Yeah, there is a first civilization part of the Assassins and Templars narrative that is also threaded through all of these games. And in Odyssey, they represent... Um, the creators of the mythological gods so we could help bring some of those myths to life through them because the assassins universe already kind of has their gods so we need to use um, the ones that have been established already and fit the mythological nature like through that lens but yeah you're right ancient aliens <laughs> it's true it's true you're not wrong um, I, okay. I digress <laughs> okay. okay that's hey that's totally fine. I use that all the time to joke, to market. I mean, come on. You can get all the, you know, the like Star Wars, Star Trek fans in, right? If you put aliens in it, it's like spacey, sort of. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's okay. You could tell my brain is not catered for marketing. 
in any sort of way. I love it. I'm, I'm here for it. We should make that. <laughs> Can we make that the tagline? Like, I feel like that should just be the new motto for the entire franchise now. Oh my gosh. Ubisoft's going to like hunt me down and be like, how can you speak about the franchise like this? <laughs> I love it. I love it. I, I feel like we, we need a whole ca- campaign for this now. Change the motto to ancient no. I did not sign up for this, but I, I secretly love it deep down. <laughs> Great. So, so jumping headfirst, I guess, into, for, for academics, I suppose, I'm sure the gaming community has its own different battles over this, but for the academic side, the very first thing we encountered was literally the gender choice and having the female character be canon when historically a lot of scholars got really pissed off when, when they said, the, the, the canon character cannot be a woman because... In Sparta, in ancient Sparta, clearly, it, you know, that's impossible. It'd be only men. So how did you navigate being like, no, we want to make the canon character the female? We always knew that we wanted to have the female protagonist be the canon character. And we also knew that history really only tells one side of what happened usually, you know, you can make the argument that, oh yes, these are like historical documents and we can only go off of that. But there's also the argument to be made that we don't know so much about what happened because one side of the argument is the, the argument that got published. Right. So for me, it wasn't something that really held me back. I was like, well, uh, we can fit anybody into this narrative. So let's give people the choice and it was very empowering at the at the time and still is to uh, be able to play a female mercenary <laughs> taking on ancient Greece and not caring about what other people thought about her. <laughs> yeah, that's very true. And I think for me, at least, I definitely lie on the side of they can do whatever they want. It's it's not trying to be a documentary. They're not trying to make actual legitimate history. If they wanted to do that, they would just go make a documentary. I think it's turned into definitely like a, you clearly are in this, you're occupying this really unique lane of edutainment, right? Edutainment. I love it. Coin it. Trademark. <laughs> but no, you're totally right. And I mean, the like very hardcore fans get very upset when we say that, well, it's not a documentary, it's a video game. But honestly, one of the MOs of Odyssey always was that we wanted to prioritize fun. We wanted people to have fun. We wanted people to not take themselves so seriously. We wanted to educate, but we wanted to educate in a way that was engaging and light and, and, you know, full of joy. Like that game has dark and tragic moments, but the thing that drives you forward all of the time is that fun kind of goofy nature that it has to it, which, uh, you know, was totally um, the vibe of the direction. We always wanted to prioritize that. And so it's really hard, like there is a time and a place for like historical narratives in video games that tell the exact story of what we know of what happened to women or people of color in like um, ancient times. Um, But that was never the goal of Odyssey. The goal of Odyssey was to talk about ancient Greece in a fun, 
um, an enthusiastic way and get people all excited about the history. And so we definitely decided, okay, we're just going to let you have fun, roam around this world, meet all of these people, um, and not be criticized for your gender all of the time. Side note, I get, I used to get, we used to play this game when new people would come on the team called Red Cup. And the story or the question I would always get from the Red Cup, you pull a question out of the cup, and the, the question I would always get was, if you could travel back in time, where would you go? And my answer was like, can they see me? <laughs> like, do I show up as I am with, you know, uh, you can't see me right now in a podcast, but green hair, circular glasses, you know, <laughs> blue nails. Like, do people, can people see me? Because if I'm the same person going back in time and roaming around uh, a, a landscape in the ancient era, I don't want to go because no one, like, they're just, they're going to kill me on site. Like, I'm not going to have any rights. Like, it's not going to work out. If I'm just, like, looking at it through, like, binoculars fine or like a telescope fine but we wanted that moment for you to be able to explore ancient Greece and like not be persecuted um and just like go have fun go out there and uh, we do receive criticism for this and I and I totally understand that was just not the game that Odyssey was trying to be um but that's not to say that other games shouldn't explore female-centric narratives or LGBTQ-centric narratives and be equally as representative on that side of the scale. Yeah, for sure. I mean, totally understandable. I appreciate it for what it turned out to be. I don't see any problem with it. And I mean, it doesn't stop me from playing it almost every day. I think I've spent like 400 hours in the game <laughs> by now. <laughs> I'm like, wait, Probably. should I said that? <laughs> <laughs> no, I love it. Thank you. But when I set out to start making the writing team, I had a friend who had told me like, man, I've always wanted to play Assassin's Creed games. I've just never been able to get into it because it doesn't feel like this story was ever made for me or this game wasn't made for me and it wasn't made to be inclusive. And so I was like, okay, well, we're going to make a game where you're like this awesome lady tank and you're going to go around and you're going to beat people up sometimes and you're going to flirt with people sometimes and you're just going to have whatever experience you want and it's going to be open. And that meant and still means a lot. And so there is definitely is value in that. Um, there's just value in all the other stories too. Were you influenced at all by some of like the previous games? Because I know in Syndicate, it's like you get to sort of play with Evie, but not really. And then of course, what they did to Aya in Origins, where you're like, she's an awesome character and I want to play with her more. And then you literally get her for five minutes. No, a little more than that, but not a lot. So, you know, did that influence you being like, it just felt so unfinished, like there wasn't enough and you wanted to go deeper. So then you're like, this is the time we can finally do this. We always knew that we wanted to give a main title game to a female character. And we had had so many opportunities by introducing female characters along the way. And, you know, there is um, an Assassin's Creed title with Aveline. And, you know, but we really wanted to make one for like all the consoles and all, all everything with a, a playable female protagonist. And it really seemed like the right choice to give people choice, especially if we were going to make like an open world game where it's all about choice. And then you're not going to give people the choice to play who they want to play. Like I, I get 
the criticism through the lens of like, oh, this is supposed to be like one story told in a, a certain period of time. But it was also like, okay, well, we're introducing choices that you make along the way. We're letting you choose what sexuality you want to be. And we want all of these things to have consequences. And so we were like, it makes a lot of sense to also offer up choice right from the get-go as well. And so we definitely um, made the game from day one with that in mind. Awesome. Awesome sauce. Love it. Love it. Like, what does a narrative director do? So obviously, I think when people think about making games, when they think about writing teams, there's this kind of assumption from us non-gamers, well, game devs, um, we're like, okay, so they, they have a team full of people. So do you write, like, do you pick who gets to write a certain character? Do you pick who gets to write a bunch of characters? Like, how does that process end up rolling out? The narrative director is responsible for the high level direction of the story and the narrative, which is the relationship that the player has with the game and all of the game's features um, and oversees a team, a writing team that helps make that possible. So as narrative director, I sat down with the game director and the creative director to establish like the high level story beats and the way, like the way the main story would play out. And then we also decided on major key um, historical characters that we wanted to have. Um, we specifically chose that point in time for Odyssey because it had such a plethora of historical characters to draw from and just set the direction for it. And then I think for every narrative director is probably a little bit different, but then we um, either assign some people like some characters and they would write that character from the beginning to the end of the project or we would let them choose which ones they wanted to to write for and it really depended on the production schedule of like what area we were making when and who wanted to do what so I just oversaw the the, the writers they did all the hard work <laughs> uh, by the time we were locking the script, I would sit down with the writer and the editor and we'd read through the entire script together. We also did script reads when in production so that the rest of the writing team would know what was happening in all of the different scripts and all of the different quests. And then um, I also was on set a lot for the filming of the cinematic moments as well. Um, but I was usually paired with, I usually brought another writer with me. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah. So it's definitely like an overseeing of the narrative process. Gotcha. Okay. Because I think that was one of my biggest things, which was like, obviously you get to oversee the team since you're on direction. But uh, yeah, I guess it didn't occur to me whether you personally got to write anything or, or not. I tried not to. I had a lot of like influence in the, in the feedback of all of the quests and I definitely was the keeper of the high level vision and how everything fit together because you know you have different writers doing different parts of the story they don't always know what's going on in other parts of the game and so somebody has to be the knower of everything and when we would sit down and for script review you know I would be the one that was like oh wait a different character says that in a different quest, we can't repeat it here, or we need new information here because two quests ago we were told this other thing, so we have to modify this. So I was very much like the high level um, overview person, but I tried not to do the writing and, and leave that up to the, the writers. <laughs> yeah, no, that's awesome, and I I absolutely will 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 
you know, understand you're probably pretty busy since that's a lot of people and a lot of things you got to keep together. And so you can make sure you know, okay, well, this is over here, this is over here. Props to you for keeping that together. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, you have to know like what's going on in different parts of the project so that the narrative is uh, as informed as possible when they're writing their scripts. Yeah, I mean, hey, uh, I don't think I could do that. I mean, I think, you know, for me, my writing is very linear. It's very, I know I want to get from point A to point B. But then, you know, if I were to have other scholars try to contribute, I would be so lost. Like, wait, where does your thing fit in? I don't know where to put this. I help, help, help. So no, and, and the writers did like an incredible job because we were making branching narrative as well. And for a lot of us, it was like the first time we were really digging into that. And so they were troopers and had to, had to lean on each other, had to, you know, use each other for reference and to figure out how we were going to build this thing. And we needed each other in order to say like, oh, what's going on here is legitimate or not. And um, I, they worked so hard to make all of that as cohesive as possible. So <laughs> kudos to them. <laughs> I oh, just tried to make problem. sure they were on uh, on track. <laughs> Yeah, no, major. I'm just, I'm always blown away by the level of quality that, that all the writers are able to bring. So it's, it's oh, super I know. Awesome. I like the best team. They were all amazing writers and, you know, you can't, you can't pull off something like the characters in Odyssey without having amazing writers. So my hat goes off to each and every one of them. So with that being said, though, do you have a favorite sort of storyline, story arc or favorite character? that was just written so brilliantly oh my gosh they're all written brilliantly but like I definitely have like uh, <laughs> yes and I like a combination of historical and fictional characters um I definitely loved Alcibiades from day one as many sex jokes as we could possibly get in um and I loved the actor the actor had the most amazing eyebrows I was like just infatuated with the guy uh, <laughs> um, so if you're listening you know I think he knew anyway um, but and he was so incredibly fun to write and record and like just be with in that process so definitely love everything that that character brought um, I have a huge soft spot for Stentor who is your half-brother who <laughs> is just like a pain in the ass but his story and the choices that he makes based on the choices you make in the game, I absolutely love. I, I always, like, one thing that I asked for was at the end of the game, if you still had Stentor, who was, like, begrudgingly on your side. Because at the end of the game, for people who haven't played it, you're searching for your family. And you meet all of these people who you incorporate into your family, even if they're not part of that. And at the end, there's um, a dinner scene. And whoever you've met along the way that was in your family, whether they be your legitimate dad or not, end up at the dinner table with you. If they're still around, if you've made choices that allowed them to stay alive in the game or allowed them to be your friend, uh, your, you know, your ally in the game, they end up at the dinner table with you. And I remember making these scenes uh, with the writer and figuring out, okay, what is the family dynamic if it's just you? What is the family dynamic if it's you and your dad, who's not your bio dad? And like, and what is the dynamic if it's like you, your mom, 
and your non like your non-bio dad <laughs> you know like and what are, what are these like it was like the most awkward dinner scenes of all time and I can't believe we got away with making them like I think we got them in just like just under the wire that nobody could say anything but I was like I desperately wanted that moment in the hero's journey when the hero goes back and realizes they don't fit anymore and I was like this is perfect to do an awkward dinner scene I digress a little bit I'm sorry but I loved it with you your non-biological father and your half-brother who's not your biological half-brother um at the dinner table because it is the most awkward thing ever where Cassandra is like hey Stendor can you pass the wine and Stentor drinks the entire like pitcher of wine in front of Cassandra and then gives her the empty jug. And I was just like, I loved that. Like I, if I could write those awkward as hell dinner scenes, like that, my life, like check that off the bucket list. That's all I fucking wanted. <laughs> like that's the most fulfilling part for me is those like awkward dinner scenes. But yeah, so I loved him and I loved that awkward family dynamic and I love what he represented, which was this like desire for heroism in the face of Sparta and wanting to live up to this adopted father figure. I loved that. And then one character who, I mean, I always loved, but really became important um, through the DLC was Phoebe. And everyone always asked me if, you, if there was a way to save her because she dies halfway through the spoiler alert. But did you play the DLC? I did. I've spent countless hours in the DLCs too. So, so when, when we were doing the second like DLC 2.2, which is like the underworld Hades version, you get to revisit some characters that you had seen in the main game and that had died. And they kind of have these like, sometimes they have redemption quests and sometimes they screw you over. Um, like we specifically like made the Brasidis questline dark uh, because he had been such a hero in the game. But like with Phoebe, we were like, Phoebe deserves like the best redemption. And I remember giving it to James Mittag to write. And I was like, do her justice, right? Like, and it was, I know that sounds so dramatic, but I was like, she is like the focal point of this. She is the heart of this story and everybody wanted better for her. So give, give us that. And he went away and then we went into script block and I was reading the script because usually I was one of the people who read the script in script block in front of everybody. And I started bawling my eyes out in, and I've never done that before. I've never cried over a script. And I was just like, you did it. You, you redeemed her. <laughs> I was just like, oh. So definitely by the end of Odyssey production in general, including DLCs, I was very like, Attached to Phoebe. <laughs> oh, I love her too. I will admit I'm that kind of player who, if I find something that's either like the good path or just something I like, I don't like to deviate. And, and sometimes I'm like, no, I'd like to see kind of what happens if you choose something else. Because then it opens up dialogue that you wouldn't otherwise hear, I suppose, unless you watched it. So I know that, spoiler alert, when you're about to send Phoebe off alone to find her family, I know you can choose between the like, here, drink the water and forget who I am, or the no, 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 you can, I'm going to pump you up and you're going to be good on your own. Yeah, I, I, I will say I've never done the forget me part. And I, <laughs> and, I, and I really don't like ever plan to. But, you know, I, I would say as the person kind of who was able to, you know, the main narrative, you know what happens when you choose each of these things. 
you know, do you recommend playing through this thing and at least once trying just to see what happens? Or are you very much like a, I kind of like this way and hope that everyone does this way? Oh, I definitely had branches that I liked better than others. Like I didn't, I didn't think they were more valid than others. We very specifically wanted to make those choices be impactful regardless of the choice that you made. And DLC included, um, especially like with the Versidus questline too. I was like, both of these things um, need to be meaningful and really need to punch you in the gut. Um, I definitely cried at the forget me bit. Like I like I definitely have moments where I'm like, oh, this is the path that like I rewind. I played through Odyssey obviously throughout the entirety of production, and then I played my own version when the game came out. But then I played with my partner and and I was like subtly trying to get him to do the paths that I thought were like, you know, that my favorite or like the most rewarding to me so that he could see like the beauty that were those scenes, you know. <laughs> I'm sure I'm really annoying to play those years. <laughs> I have my fair share of backseat players and I also am guilty of backseat playing for other people because I'm like, wow, <laughs> you have to see this one thing. I One example I always think of is right at the beginning when you start off in, on Kefalonia and then you have Marcos there and, you know, I'm kind of like, well, you can see him as a sort of bumbling idiot or you can just be okay he's lovable like does stupid things but whatever yeah. and my favorite thing is to play Cassandra always like real sassy with him yeah. <laughs> yeah. and the like you know you offend me oh yeah. oh me. you wound me Cassandra right yeah. and it's like the you know the dialogue the delivery it's so amazing but I have a friend who cannot stand to play the asshole quote-unquote so <laughs> always is choosing like the super the nicest most sugar-coated and I'm like but but you're not unlocking this amazing dialogue. I'm like, no, you yeah. have to choose. So stubborn, just like, no, I don't want it. I don't want to be an asshole. I want to be nice. Yeah. So for you know. me, I definitely get attached to specific lines. Um, Alyssa Ralph wrote the most amazing line on Kevalonia um, about how Marcos is, is trying to like um, energize you up. And he talks about like, you know, I, I've given you everything, Cassandra, like this hovel, like, and he like, he like downplays it and upplays it like at the same time. And it's just like one of my favorites. So like, I definitely get attached to like lines or moments like that, that I want to see again. Um, and I played maybe six months ago, I revisited it because I wanted my partner to finish the story. <laughs> and I was definitely, it was so heartwarming to like go back and see those characters again, after having not seen them for a couple of years. And um, and kind of re-experience those moments of, of joy. Um, I still keep in touch with some of the writers from that project, and we talk about, like, the good, the good quests and the, and the ones that we loved and the ones that made us laugh. Um, the ones that got in, like, under the wire, there's um, uh, an Oedipus quest that you can find, like, out in the middle of nowhere, and it's, like, the backwards version. That was, that came in so late, and I was, like, we have to do this. Like we can't, we can't make a game about ancient Greece and not reference the like ridiculousness that Oedipus Rex is. So I was like, Dan, Bingham, do your thing, get it in, make it ridiculous. Like it has to be as hammy as possible. And he did it. I did, there was definitely a moment where somebody on the like our creative director or something kind of looked at this and was like, um, <laughs> 
what are you guys, what the fuck are you guys doing? But I got in, and like we always reminisce about that quest because it's so dumb. <laughs> um, I think for every classicist who's ever played that game, you knew it the minute the dude started talking about what was going on. And then just like explaining it to my non-classicist friends and then just having like seeing their collective's minds just like break and just go like, oh, you see the fireworks happening. Greatest moment that you have given us as classicists <laughs> to be able to gift our friends with this knowledge. Thank you for that. I cannot say that enough. Oh uh, and then I would say, a similar one for me was I had the privilege of speaking quite recently with Betty Robertson, who I knew wrote a little bit for the game. She's amazing. And I heard, so she was in, in charge of the Trojan horse quest. And I think I asked her about it. And so now I guess as narrative director, I, I guess I have to bring it up. Like, how did that get allowed? Especially when that historically would have been so much earlier that it really shouldn't have even been in the game. Well, I mean, for a lot of those quests, we just wanted to reference as much of the history as we could and a lot of the myths as well. Um, and the Trojan horse like rides that line. <laughs> and as many of as we could, we tried to get them into like Easter eggs. Um, there's also, I, I was sitting down with the quest director at the time during production and we had to map out all the side quests that we wanted and we wanted to highlight the stories that we wanted to tell. And we decided, okay, we need to base as many of these off of mythological stories or historical stories that we know about that um, we could really leverage. Uh, like the one where the man goes to the underworld looking for his wife and, <laughs> you know, like all of those. We tried to, like, and a lot of them were like hidden in there. And uh, with the Trojan horse, we were like, well, <laughs> we have to, <laughs> we have to get this one in here. And it has to be like, it's one of those things like you, we couldn't afford to put people in a Trojan horse, right? So you have, and it's too far along in production when you're coming up with side quests to give them the budget they maybe do or don't deserve. So you have to like figure out how you're going to put the Trojan horse in, in the jankiest, most ridiculous way possible and like allude to that story, but just get it in because you know that it's going to, it's just going to, it's going to be worth it. So oh yeah. we definitely handed that one off and we were like hey can you can you do something with this <laughs> so like kudos to betty hey it turned out fantastically well and and so that's one that i'm always telling people okay well when you go to when you go to sparta you you can't miss this one go look for it i think this is what you need to do to find it and then everyone who sees it just goes like this is fantastic but also <laughs> why is so this dumb <laughs> yeah so yeah, I mean, when you when you reference getting attached to lines, I think mine was like, oh well, I remember the wine and the partying and the chickens. Don't remember the Trojan horse. <laughs> and then <it laughs> pans to it, and you're like, there's a Trojan horse right here. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely one of my favorites. To kind of wrap this up in a in a pretty bow. Yeah. Like, what did you have a favorite location, region, city? like where and I, I mean it's it's a huge map I mean when I first started playing I was like how am I ever gonna get everywhere this is the biggest map I've ever seen and obviously with I mean even with AAA studios you still have you know budgets and time and all that stuff so obviously you can't dedicate you know all the time in the world to creating every single location perfectly and and, and um and recreating everything the way it, it was in history but, you know, uh, so there are a few things that obviously as a classicist, you know, when I'm using these for Archeo gaming, 
I did a video quite recently on the Parthenon. And I think the first question someone was like, is that bronze on the Parthenon? Like, what? what is it? And then I was like, no, no, no. I was like, I think it's a budgetary thing. You know, like th th those are those are the Parthenon marbles. They're, they're not actually bronze. And um, but just, you know, considering despite all that, you guys did such a great job bringing it to life. It looks amazing. But I know each region has its own special things and characteristics. So, you know, yeah. And, and you can include the DLCs in that. Like, did you particularly enjoy the Underworlds or? Um, uh, the Underworld was just like a like icing on the cake because we just got to, like, we specifically knew we wanted to revisit characters. And so um, I was like, we need to bring back the goodies, you know? <laughs> so I was like, we got to bring back, got to bring back Persidus. And like, oh. I'll be hated for saying this, but like people were so upset that they could not romance him. And then I was like, no, we should do the DLC, make it bad. <laughs> oh my gosh, they're going to crucify me. But so I loved it, but it was mostly for the characters. I mean, I would say that probably any of the places that I loved were because of the characters, but I think one of the places that stands out to me the most um, was not one of the places that the Quebec team worked on. It was actually um, I had a, a, a associate narrative director who worked with the Singapore team and they did the majority of the islands and the, I believe it was in Pefka, they have like the fake Minotaur quest line. It is so funny. It's so, I remember when that came in and we were playing it and we were like, this is comedy gold. And every time <laughs> I go, I'm like, Minotaur Phoenix. <laughs> I just, I can't, it's just so fun. And I, it was so well done. Like hats off to the Singapore team, hats off to Joel and his writers over there. Um, They like knocked it out of the park. And it's one of the like places that has like an identity as a whole that I really, I really love because they really geared it towards them being like the frauds of the Minotaur, uh, like of, of where the Minotaur was, because, you know, from history, the Minotaur is actually next door, but they pretend that the Minotaur is there. Oh, for sure. Oh, I love that so much. Oh, I love that so much. I love the Pefka storylines. It's definitely a nugget. I was not sure at all where y'all were going with this because... <laughs> One of my main interests as a classist was Bronze Age class, Crete, the Minoans, all that mythology and chaos. So I was really curious to see how it would turn out. And uh, man, did it deliver? <laughs> so, okay, you're not at Ubisoft anymore. So hopefully you can kind of now get into the just pure fan seat along with the rest of us where would you like to see them go? Because I, I know everyone has different opinions on where they want future AAA games to go, but where would you personally like to see them go? I don't, I'm not speaking from a place of knowing, so, <laughs> uh, but there, we've seen a lot of Western history, so it would be very nice to see some other kinds. And I think there's still, we interviewed someone for a job a long time ago, I think I was on Syndicate, and they said in the interview that Assassin's Creed didn't have any stories left to tell, and I just find that that's <laughs> so wrong. <laughs> and it's just, there's so many points of history that, like, I honestly, I would take anything. Uh, the more creative, the better, though I do know that they have to have mass market appeal, but I, I would be interested in basically anything, and I definitely miss working on a historical piece like that so it's so cool 
Yeah, I think for me, it's so cliche to say feudal Japan because you have like the ninjas and I'm always over here like ninjas and samurai, please pit the ninjas <laughs> against the samurai. That's what I want to see. But I do understand that's really cliche. And I have a lot of friends who are very much like do an Aztec Assassin's Creed. Come on, that would be so cool. Or the Mayans or something just explore a different part of the world so yeah, there's so much there's so much there to pull from um i'd just be excited to see wherever they want to go next yeah for sure so hopefully you know we've got a ways until they announce what the next big one will be but uh you know hopefully it'll be somewhere non-western that is amazing that we all are really hoping for i mean you know, when they first announced Valhalla, I was kind of like, okay, well, the last thing we need is another thing here in, like, England and whatever. But then the game came out, and I marathon through it, and I was like, okay, we did need this. This was not a thing. We did need this. But now that we have this, okay, now I'm really ready to take this somewhere. The, the thing about the AC team, like, they will always do it justice, you know? Like, it, there's so much effort and love put behind those games. Like, I think sometimes... AC gets discounted as kind of like a blockbuster title. But I I really think that like the teams always put their heart and soul into what they do. And so wherever they venture to next, I know that um, they will do their best and that it will be exciting. And even if you think you already know it, you probably don't. <laughs> well, especially for the ISU part, I will say we definitely don't know where they're going to go with that. So would always be excited 100% to, to see where they go with that. Now, in terms of using the game for other purposes that aren't just to be enjoyed as for gamers, like, do you see a path eventually for these games, especially Odyssey for classes? I mean, it's, it's a given to be used more widely in classrooms? Like, is this something you would love to see in things for like grade school kids to be learning with? Or, you know, obviously these games are made to be very sophisticated and, you know, I mean, we have the discovery tour, so there's no violence. You don't want that sort of thing. But, you know, or do you see it as this is like a college grad school type of thing? Well, discovery tour makes it more accessible. And and I think, too, it's been really interesting to talk to people who haven't found the games themselves all that accessible because of all the violence, um, because of the role you take in those games, or because games are overwhelming. Some people, like AAA games are huge uh, undertakings, you know, so like uh, some people are just like totally overwhelmed by the games, but the Discovery Tour has very much like opened the door for some people to explore these areas without um, really the like in, the increasing pressure of how giant these games are. And so I definitely think it's starting to be used more and more widely. And I, you hear stories all the time about people using AC in the classrooms. And I think that's, that's fantastic. We do put a lot of research in there. I think the line there is like, you know, some of it is entertainment purposes. We don't usually like transgress history without a good reason to do so but it's really exciting to be able to bring those characters to life and especially in the discovery tour like they really got to be present in that as well you know and you get to meet characters that you wouldn't necessarily read about like aspasia you know so like i I think it's important yeah and i suppose yeah if more people are using them in the classrooms to teach for the specific purpose of teaching should there be a further emphasis then on like 
hiring people outside of like STEM field? Like if more people are going to want to use the actual research that is being put in, are we moving toward a place where it's not all about STEM and these technical skills to make video games? But is this like now maybe a further push toward hiring people with humanities background? Well, we definitely worked with a historian on site and and she had a bunch of colleagues like all around the world that helped her out. So, you know, we were pulling in people that weren't necessarily just from STEM. I know the writing team that I worked with, um, some of them had experience in games, but we tried to get um, a wide background of different kinds of writers with different kinds of backgrounds, you know, you have the, the comedian, <laughs> you know, the, the English lit major, like whatever, like you try and bring them in so that you get a more diverse approach to these things. But like, yeah, I mean, you don't have to be a computer engineer in order to work in video games. It is like a, not a more guaranteed way in, I can't even say that, but I mean, like, you assume that you need to be part of STEM in order to work in games, but there are positions open for all sorts of people. I specifically always try to look for diversity in terms of background and, and, and where you come from when I'm building teams, just because I think that you do learn a lot in the humanities and stuff. It's a perfectly legitimate career for somebody in humanities. I know because I was one of those people. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, I think it's really valuable to have voices from within these fields where ideally people would eventually want to be because I think we don't get enough of that. I know so many people, so many people who are classicists or Egyptologists who were like, my dream job is to be a historical consultant on either a game or TV or a film or something. And there's just this assumption that like, oh no, you can't do that. You need the technical skills, especially in gaming. Like, no, 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 there's no room for you. I've always worked with consultants. Um, Assassin's Creed always works with historians and consultants and it's so valuable. So absolutely try try and get, if you get a weird request to help an unnamed uh, project uh, (laughs) from a big company, like take it because probably, uh, it's probably really exciting. Um, I expect it is a little difficult at first because there are things you have to, decisions you have to make due to the fact that you are making a game in nature, like it isn't a documentary or it isn't an essay. And, you know, I would bicker sometimes with our historian about what decisions we would keep on the fictional side and which historical notes we would accommodate. We would try to do as much of that as possible, the latter. But sometimes you have to be like, well, <laughs> we don't have an alternative for this. And we can't, you know, we can't use that historical quote that you have. Uh, but <laughs> so we're going to have to go with this fictional route anyway. So there's a little bit of give and take there of like, yes, we love the history. We try to accommodate the history as much as possible. But there is that other side of it, which is like, well, we're supposed to have fun. So <laughs> Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. I I can only imagine the conversations between those who are like, I'm just trying to make a good piece of entertainment over here. And then the historians on, you know, trying to like shove as much historical stuff as they can. Like, no, 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 put this nugget in, please. I I can only imagine what those conversations are. Well, it was like the the triremes uh, that you sail triremes in odyssey and it was like well everyone knows what a trireme is we have to like we have to have this because the other boats did not look cool 
if we are making a video game where you're trying to feel cool and like that is the way that you know odyssey was built that we were trying to have the the player to feel empowered and have fun and feel like a badass and so we were like yes you were sailing triremes even though that's like impossible to do <laughs> so it's just like you know we had to throw that one out the window for the sake of coolness because merchant boats really didn't do it hey <laughs> i am on board for this you know so when i'm making my videos i always add the caveat like no this is not accurate because also all the weight you would never have everyone standing on there and the boat would just capsize <laughs> yeah. but it looks cool so yeah, we like, like it we didn't talk about the fact that like people shat on each other's heads because there were so many people rowing it like we didn't get into that but like <laughs> By the way, we definitely had to make some concessions for coolness. Uh, you know, the same thing could be said for the women in history part. It was like, well, we don't know about a ton of female mercenaries, but you were going to be one anyway, and you were going to kick people's asses, and we weren't going to, like, make you feel bad for that. So, uh, you know, we made we made the cool decision on a couple fronts. Oh, for sure. For sure. No, I, I very much appreciate it. So, yeah. <laughs> But uh, we are aware that we, we were <laughs> under the impression that it was like, oh yeah, everyone has sailed dryers that would totally capsize in like five minutes. Fun fact, but yeah, no, it's great. Yeah. I, I love it. So, you know, you have one fan over here who's like, it's fun, just throw it out to the wind. I was happy it. to sail around in my powered up trireme with my flamethrower that totally existed back. Historically accurate. Exactly. You know, just <laughs> going around flamethrowing people, burning up some ships, you know, hard day's work. It's great. <laughs> okay, so the last thing I have all the guests do on my podcast are read the Percy Shelley version of the Ozymandias poem. So if you could read that for us and then tell me what your thoughts are on you know what is the like on the meaning of the poem kind of like does it speak to you does it evoke any you know what kind of emotions does it kind of evoke when you read it i'm sandra and i'm just the professional your small business was looking for but you didn't hire me because you didn't use linkedin jobs linkedin has professionals you can't find anywhere else including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role like me in a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. 
If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions red which yet survive stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal, these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. So there is the reading into it. You know, you can deconstruct it for a long time. Talks about human hubris and power and at building empires and all of that, which I think is perfectly legitimate. What it really makes me think of, and I don't really understand why, but I always, this was something that stuck with me through all of Odyssey as well, was the concept and the obsession with immortality and how, especially um, it makes me think of Achilles in the underworld talking in, in, in the Odyssey, about how you know you strive to be immortal but what does that mean and there's that realization that oh you can be immortal if people remember who you are and that obsession with being known throughout all of time and history and like it's incredible to me to think that especially in like the lens of odyssey how like Achilles is still an immortal being because we still talk about him today, <laughs> whether he deserved it or not. It's like a whole other thing. It's the same thing with this poem. It's like whether, you know, Ozymandias deserves that or not. is like a whole other thing. But the fact that that legacy lives on, it's still a huge reference. Like, you know, the Achilles heel, we talk about casually and, there's so much that antiquity has brought us that still informs our culture today that this poem, I think, really evokes in me that these people are still immortal in that we've carried them all the way through till now. Like I'm talking about Aspasia today is incredible, you know, and that when you sent that poem and you were like, oh, all of the guests read that. Like that's the first thing that really came to my mind was that yes, there's like this obsession with immortality, um, but also we have enabled that and it is still like relevant today. Um, and you can see that through this poem and, you, and it really just, I guess makes me a little bit like emotional about um, Odyssey and everything that we were able to do and have fun with and play around with that uh, a lot of those themes are still relevant and still present and yeah oh that's so excellent yeah that that hits the nail right on the head I mean it's 
the reason that I have guests read this poem for every podcast and the reason that I, I named my podcast after it is because it's my favorite poem in the world. I read it in either high school or college. I can't remember, but I immediately loved it. And that's, it's exactly, yeah, that it's the nature of immortality, the nature of fleeting power, right? Whether it's political or any other sort of power. and Even in its essence of being like a part of a statue in the middle of the desert, in the desert, you know, around ruins. One of the things I used to joke about with traveling to Greece to do research for Assassin's Creed Odyssey was that like, well, you know, today they are rocks and grass, but those rocks and grass are very interesting, let me tell you. And it's the same thing here. It's like, even though it's just like rocks and sand, there's a whole legacy there that exists that is waiting to be talked about. And the fact that those, the rocks and the sand still exist, like it's still, it's still hanging on. It's still relevant. You know, it, it means it's a, it's kind of like a touching thing. You know, it's kind of an emotional thing. I'm, it is. I, I mean, I quite like this poem. <laughs> it's like a poem that you wouldn't assume would be, it's not traditionally emotional, not the way that you could read Thomas, you could read Dickinson, whatever, find something and just sort of read something and go, oh my gosh, I don't know, you could read Sappho and be like, oh my gosh. This isn't like <laughs> traditionally emotional, but I think anyone with that connection to mythology or, you know, love of the ancient world, and even without the connection to that, there's always something in there that I think as humans we can connect to and it brings us together. It makes us emotional. It gets us thinking. Those are my favorite types of poems. So, you know, this one, yeah, of course, it's just my favorite for all time. So having kind of figured out what this poem is talking about, one of the last questions I love to ask guests because I love the, the range of different answers I get are if we consider today's modern culture, our society, whatever, is there something right now that we would consider kind of like a, a modern Ozymandias, like something we think is amazing that will last forever? We're creating this, this amazing legacy. And then like, come on, 2000 years from now, is it really going to be remembered as amazing or just going to be like, oh, what were you thinking? That's stupid. It really depends on, I guess, you know, you know what it be. You know, it'll be, uh, unfortunately, be like Nyan Cat or something, but <laughs> like something, so a meme or something that like shouldn't be the thing that we were, they're like, oh, but 2000 years ago, <laughs> people love this image of Kermit the Frog drinking tea. Um, <laughs> well, I, it'll probably be something dumb like that, but I don't know. I It really depends on what becomes so kind of ingrained and meaningful and held up like it really has to do with how we tell history and if you know there's a lot going on in the U.S. Uh, in Canada right now and I it makes me wonder if we are able to change the narrators of who tells the history it will definitely change the outcome of what is remembered for years to come, that if we can be more open and diverse about the voices we let tell the story of humanity, that it, it may not just only be these kind of monolithic statues that we remember, but maybe movements or sentiments or beliefs that carry on over time. But we have to make sure that we're empowering a whole bunch of voices, especially the ones who have yet to be heard probably yeah 
fantastic answer. I totally agree. And I, I hope really that, you know, 2000 years from now, someone won't just find a random meme and go, oh, oh that's what <laughs> they were doing in, you know, 2020. <laughs> Watch it be like the stupidest meme in the world. So where can people find you and are there any projects that you'd like to sort of promote it's okay if you can't talk about them but um, for people who are interested in, in your future work who may love your work on odyssey and some of the other ac games where can people find you <laughs> they can't <laughs> on purpose <laughs> um i don't know i i did i don't know if it's the pandemic or what i've definitely taken a step back from social media like i left twitter and for my mental health and and stuff like that I would just say like (laughs) thank you for your support up to this point when I can talk about the next thing I definitely will in some capacity but uh you know generally for me right now I need to focus on my well-being and the well-being of the people around me and the well-being of the team that I'm working with is especially important so kind of all of my time and effort goes there Um, maybe one day I'll resurface into the social media sphere but uh, for now I go back to the rock that I was (laughs) under (laughs) hey I think you know in the in in the realm of 2020-2021 Perfectly acceptable answer. I, if I knew <laughs> it was good for me, I would have stepped back long ago. But unfortunately, I have things that I need to get out there, so I can't totally, you know, go away from yeah. it. But uh, I used to like be of the belief that the only way that you could make a difference was by being on like center stage in, you know, in front of everyone. And now I think that that while that route is totally viable, that. Um, the work that I need to do now is um, both internal and for like the benefit of the people I work most closely with. So that's just kind of my approach for now. It doesn't mean that I'll never go back. Social media is definitely a useful tool for a lot of reasons, but uh, it's been a rough time. (laughs) Yeah, no, totally understandable. So you know, I could uh, keep the conversation going forever and ever because, you know, so many great things <laughs> to talk about uh, with fellow, you know, gamer nerds, history nerds. But uh, unfortunately, uh, the world doesn't work like that. So <laughs> thank you so much, though, for taking time out of your afternoon to come join me on the podcast. And, uh, you know, it's been a, a real pleasure. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. This is so amazing. And uh I look forward to conversations in the future because I'm always down to nerd out about anything history. So uh, (laughs) if you want to keep that conversation going, I'm all in. (laughs) Trireme Transit is now departing ancient office hours. Next stop is Present Ponderings. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.